slide shows you my title for the sermon this morning, which is uh, Oppression in Egypt. And if you w would, just turn to Exodus chapter 1. And we will start off by just reading the first five verses. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So we start off with this paragraph that lists all the names of all these, these people. And, and starting off Exodus like this, emphasizes, I think, that it's the next stage in an unfolding story. It's not something brand new. This is the next stage in an unfolding story. And so that first paragraph right there establishes a continuity of the Genesis account of Abraham's family. And the same can be said of the other books of what's commonly known as the Pentateuch. That would be Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books of the Bible, they flow together. They're meant to be understood as you know, one unit there, um, a single narrative, a single story of God's purpose marching forward. God's purpose marching forward. For example, if we go all the way back to the very beginning, Eve, Eve was told that her offspring would crush the head of the deceitful serpent. That's a prophecy, right? Abraham was foretold that his seed would become the source of universal blessing. The sons of Jacob, they all received the blessing from their father and prophecies. They were filled with all kinds of expectations. And Judah, in particular, among them, was given a promise of an everlasting kingship that would be committed to one of his descendants. Now, from our vantage point, we're able to look at that and say, well, I know what that's all about. That's pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. But if you go and look at it from the very beginning, it's a continuous flow that carries one step on from the next. And I think that that's a good way to start looking at the book of Exodus. So in Exodus, we're still at a very early stage in God's grand design. And uh, you know we're going to go through God's grand design once more when we hit the spring holy days and we'll start walking through that. But the book of Exodus is one of the ways that we understand God's grand design that's marching forward. Here we have a family and they've come to this new land. And they're just a family at this point. They're not a nation. But they will be a nation. By God's great power, they will become a nation. And through them, God's going to do some very significant things. He will work it out that through them, he will have his laws, his ethics, and his nature written down to be preserved for future generations. If they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have a scripture to refer to. And if you hearken back to last week's message, if we don't have a scripture to refer back to, we can get lost in the weeds pretty easily. So it's a very important part of God's plan. And then through them, the living God would also provide a deliverer. A deliverer, which is Jesus the Messiah. 
And he would establish his church and he would open the way for all humanity to enter into eternal glory in the family of God. So we start Exodus with a family and it's part of a story that leads us on to an answer which is entrance into a family. So here we are, we're in 2024 AD and we know more, we know more than the people who were there in Egypt who uh, descended into the oppression we're further along in God's plan and we can see things yet. We're not at the end. We're not at the end. We're in the flow. We're not looking back on all things. We can look back on portions of it. Part of it's happened. But there's still stuff to come. And so I think it's very important for all of us to think of ourselves as we are part of this story flow. It's not all history. Some of it's happening. And some of it's yet to come. So that's my point. You, and I mean you, are part of this narrative. You're part of it. And their history is your history. This is the history of people God chooses and gives a purpose to. All right, back to Exodus. Back to Exodus. Exodus 1, verse 6 and 7. Joseph and all his brothers, those who came to Egypt, and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. There are a few things that I think are really worth unpacking from that little section of scripture. Joseph. Joseph had been a great man. According to Genesis, he had shaped the course of Egyptian history. If you think back to the seven years of famine, and, or the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, Joseph completely transformed the economy of the greatest nation on earth. It wasn't necessarily all good, but it was definitely a transformation. The government took over all the property. It completely transformed the country. But now he was, now he was gone, okay? Joseph is dead. And there was no one to intervene for Israel. No one to speak for them, to fight for them, or to intervene. And for four centuries, four centuries, and that's a long time. For four centuries, there was, there was no power figure to take his place. And Israel would have to work out how they fit into this Egyptian empire, this Egyptian culture on their own, this strange land. They'd have to be figuring it out on their own. And as the record shows, they didn't do very well. They were, however, as we, as we read, they were, however, blessed. All right, they were blessed. Uh, their blessing was, was what? Many children, many, many children, and generation after generation, such that they grew in numbers. And this is something that, that God likes. He's very in favor of this sort of stuff. And sometimes I look around and I see what's happening, not only in our country, but all kinds of different countries at this moment in time. And it seems that the, that perspective regarding children and family as a real blessing has kind of become kind of lost, missed out, 
people don't really look at it the same way. Um, I mean, based on what I'm hearing, a lot of people consider children as to be kind of risky. That's a challenge. Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> we had kids, and yeah, it is. Trust me. A burden? Yeah, it can be. Unnecessary? I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, a bad career move? Yeah. Bad for the, for the environment? You know, there's all kinds of arguments out there about, you know, hey, I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of uh, cards stacked against it. Don't think it's a good idea. And we've kind of lost the perspective of children and a family as a, as a blessing. And that God loves this. He's, he likes it. He's happy about it. I mean, if you, again, look at the story flow, Genesis starts out with a man and a woman, and they're told to do what? Go forth and multiply. This is a great blessing. It's something God gives. And he, he's given it to us. He's given it to all people. I think it's a blessing on so many levels. One is that because in this way, everyone is allowed and you know, invited in to participate in God's grand design. Again, this whole design that God has for what he wants to do with the universe and with, with life. Each of us is drawn into this to create new life. I mean, we don't create the spiritual life, but it begins with the physical life. And we're drawn into the process as men and women and as families. And that's, to me, where the blessing really is. is we're, we're given this opportunity to bring about new life. If you have a child, that child wouldn't have happened if you didn't have it. And every new life has this potential to enter into God's family. And God delights in new life. And so they were being blessed. There were good things happening to Israel. And they were kind of working with the program, expanding, bringing new life into the world. Now let's take a look at um, verse 8. It says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. I think the King James says, A new king who knew not Joseph. So the political situation in Exodus changed. It had been rocking along, I guess, for a while, and then it changed. And that can happen to us too, right? Things can just change. Things can be looking pretty good and then boom, they're changed. And this new king basically didn't respect or recognize any of the treaties or the deals or the arrangements that Joseph might have set up for Israel's protection. So a whole new playing field was opened up. And I think it's worthy for us to think about, about that a little bit because battles that are fought and won by our forefathers are not our victories. They're not our victories at all. They're their victories. You might think of, you know, they, we used to talk about the greatest generation and, you know, how they fought in the Second World War, all that kind of stuff. Well, that was their war. That was their victory. It's not ours. We didn't do anything to, do, to make that happen or anything good in that. But we're the result of it. Now, we might benefit from what those who came before us did. But time will wear away the accomplishments. Even the mightiest mountain 
is worn down over time by wind and rain. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts and nothing lasts forever. And every new generation has to fight and win their own battles. I don't know where we are in the detailed scheme of history or what's happening in our culture or in our church, but I know that the new generation coming forward will have to fight their own battles. I mean, you're here in this room. Why? Because of what? Because other people have gone before you. Other people have gone before you, and they, they took up the cause and they built something out of it. And it's great, we benefit from it tremendously. But you will have to fight for your own future. And it's a, kind of a mindset, you have to be prepared for that. And I'm, you know, I'm speaking to younger people, but also people my own age, I guess. You have to fight for your own future. And I'm talking about the church. I mean, I think that there's a lot of stuff going on in our country, that we can look at and say, ah, but talking about the church, it is up to us and we will have to fight for our own future and we can. Now, getting back to Israel, if you think about their situation, Joseph's gone, new king, everything's up for grabs, it's, all the deals have been thrown up in the air and you know, perhaps the presence of another towering figure like Joseph would have helped Israel managed the political transition, you know, by representing their interests in the halls of power and so forth. But there was no such person. Perhaps, perhaps if the people themselves had been strong-willed and tenacious like Jacob, they could have maneuvered their way through the social turbulence all around them. But that's not how it worked out. Go to Philippians 2. I'm going to put my ribbon in Exodus because I'm going to come back. Philippians 2 verse 12, a well-known scripture. If you don't know it well, you should, and this is your first step in that direction. Philippians 2 verse 12 and 13. Paul writing here says to his church there in Philippi, Therefore, my dear friends, have you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his grand purpose, his good purpose. Paul was another great man. You know, he's another one of these towering figures. And I'll bet you that a lot of people were very inspired to get their act together just because Paul was there among them. Kind of makes sense, you know, if you know how we function and operate. Just having a person like Paul there, yeah, that would have been a strong motivation to, you know, I need to, I need to get with the program, get my act together. But he warned them that they had to become strong enough themselves and courageous enough themselves to work their way through God's plan of redemption. Paul could not, and, and I, I'm guessing would not, carry them into the kingdom of God. We're in the same boat. 
Let's talk about what happened. The children of, of Jacob, when they were in Canaan, had been rural herdsmen. They weren't living in urban areas. They were ranchers, probably had a lot of, lot of open, wide open spaces all around them. And uh, there was a famine, of course, and they came down to Egypt, which at that time was the greatest nation on earth. And so they came into Egypt, and just imagine going from that rural type setting into this nation, and there's, there's monumental buildings all around, fantastic artwork, gorgeous temples, a very impressive, impressive religious pageantry. It would have been, wow, overwhelming, overwhelming. And I put it to you that they were overwhelmed. They were dazzled. They were dazzled, and they were sucked in. Take a look at uh, just a couple of scriptures quickly. Joshua 24, verse 14, looking back on what had happened to them. And Joshua was one of the people who came out. Joshua 24, verse 14, says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. He's trying to get people to stick with it. And he says, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So while they were in Egypt, they picked up some nasty habits. Go to Ezekiel 20, verse 8. And I'm talking about idolatry, obviously. Ezekiel 20, verse 8. Uh, says here, again, looking back, sort of analyzing the past, says, but they, that's the, the people of Israel, rebelled against me and would not listen to me, and they did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, and they did not forsake the idols of Egypt. And then, I won't go to this verse, but when they were brought out by God and they were in the wilderness, they still longed for the delicacies of Egypt. And that reference would be when they were lusting after food, you know, cucumbers and onions and, and all the delicacies and the, the meat and all that stuff. But another one of the aspects of Egyptian culture was that it was a very sexual culture, very sensuous, lots of stuff going on. And, you know, if you think about what they did right after Moses went up the mountain, they got pretty wild. They'd picked up some bad habits. What happened was they became enthralled with the civilization of Egypt. And they were drawn in to its ways. They were drawn into its idolatrous ways. And they were reduced to slavery. And I, I wonder if that slavery, maybe it started off first spiritually. But they became enslaved spiritually. And then that led to them being enslaved physically. Go back to Exodus. Let's pick up where we left off. That'll be verse 9. Look, this is the king, the new king. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites, they've become far too numerous for us. They're blessed with a lot of children. That's not good for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So, 
They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built uh, Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Uh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So Israel, they'd been prospering, they'd been growing in population, and, um, and that you know, it was good. They probably also grew in wealth and power that would go along with having a larger population. But all that success that they had aroused the jealousy and the suspicion of the Egyptians. And I think that's a lesson for us to think about. Prosperity is very precarious. And it can actually also kind of lead us into trouble sometimes. I think we've all seen that. But the, I think the lesson that's really, really important is to remember that prosperity is precarious and we need divine protection. We need God's protection. Even if we've got plenty of cash in the bank, we've got our retirement all set up, we've got all kinds of great stuff to fall back on, even a vacation home maybe. Okay, that's, that's fine. God's not against wealth. He's not against people doing well. He wants to bless people and ha let them have an abundant life. But without God's protection, all that is very precarious. So Israel was prospering, they were doing well, but then, boom, things changed and... I mean, they were in a situation where they were already spiritually compromised and then they became physically compromised. And when political situations changed dramatically, like they had in Egypt, past agreements and treaties and protections and all that stuff are often forgotten and no longer honored. I mean, think of our own situation. U.S. Constitution, our Bill of Rights, stuff like that, they're not going to last forever. They will not last forever. Nothing does. What will, are, are we prepared for a world in which these things kind of go away? Are we? Are we relying on the safety and security of our nation rather than the safety and security that comes from dedication to God? I hope not. We don't want to be in that boat at all, do we? So prosperity, kind of a double-edged sword sometimes. I'm not, I'm not saying God is against prosperity. I'm definitely not. Um, I'm just saying that you know, it's important to keep our head above water when we are doing well and make sure that we look to God for protection. The only sure bet in a world that's always changing is to rely on the living God. But Israel, again, get back to their story, they had allowed themselves to be drawn away from the faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they were sucked in to Egyptian life. We read that in Ezekiel, Joshua. They kind of didn't really keep themselves together. They got sucked into Egyptian life and they ended up at the bottom of Egyptian life. Go back to Genesis 43, just a little uh, interesting note I want to add here. The Egyptians' attitude towards uh, other races is, uh, I want Genesis 43, verse 32. 
they were very, uh, they didn't like to mix with other, other races in Egypt. They had all kinds of different peoples in Egypt. There were lots of different races in Egypt, but they didn't like to mix with them. Uh, let's just read this example here in Genesis 43, verse 32. It says, uh, they, served, uh, they served him by himself. This is Joseph when his brothers are coming, right? They served him by himself. They served Joseph by himself, and the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who uh, were with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not or would not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to the Egyptians. So they had this way of looking at other nations around them. Um, they kind of ran a apartheid state. I mean, the people of Israel were kept separate from them in many ways. They were influenced greatly by Egyptian society, but they were never integrated racially into Egyptian society. Because the Egyptian state, like I said, practiced a sort of apartheid. Um, they didn't like to mix with foreigners, so they kept Israel at arm's length which allowed them to develop as a nation. So they were sucked in culturally, not racially. So they were somewhat separate. And I think you'll see why that's worth considering when we move forward. So the new Pharaoh had this plan. He wanted to deal with them, right? Because they're multiplying too fast. The Pharaoh's plan was fueled by racial fear. That was a big factor in what was going on in Egypt, racial fear. These people, these people, they're going to take over if we don't deal with them. So they came up with this plan where they were going to work them to death, all the while extracting maximum value out of them as slaves. It kind of reminded me of uh, things we saw in the 20th century in Germany and uh, Soviet Union. But even in this terrible situation, Israel kept having babies. <laughs> kept having babies. They kept having that, that blessing. So more extreme measures were going to be necessary. And I'm saying this just to kind of help us wrap our mind around what was so awful about what they were subject to in Egypt, what they were redeemed from. So Exodus, I'm going to go back to Exodus where my little bookmark is here. And uh, Exodus 1, I'm going to pick it up in verse 15. So... The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, and there are two mentioned here, their names were uh, Shifra and Paua. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the babies live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased. They kept having babies and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So the oppression in Egypt involved this secret population control program. Now, to put it in our terms, in 20, 21st century terms, it's a population control program. Genocide. 
That's what we would call it nowadays, right? Genocide. They would command these midwives to murder all the Hebrew baby boys as soon as they were born. You know, it's one of those things you might think, well, that's kind of wild, that's kind of out there. But if you look at recent history, we've seen people do stuff like that. If you think about what happened in China during the 80s and 90s, it's kind of similar. I don't think they went around, you know, killing the born children, but it was a very drastic and very awful program to control birth, to control new life. So looking ahead, okay, let's look ahead. So this is a great crime in God's eyes, a crime against life. And, you know, from the comments I mentioned earlier, God is in favor of new life, wants new life. So this great crime, looking ahead, it's going to be punished. It's going to be punished. It would be personally avenged by the living God. On the evening of the first Passover, the final plague on Egypt kills every firstborn child not brought under the blood of the slain lamb. Now we look at that from a perspective of our personal salvation, our personal redemption, but it was also payback. You could say that Egypt brought that horrible punishment upon themselves. You know, and there's a legal principle called lex talonis. That's the Latin name for it, but basically what it means is let the punishment fit the crime. Let the punishment fit the crime. And you know, that's a principle that our society has, has kind of drifted away from. I mean, just my opinion, but I think some very small crimes receive outlandish punishments and some very awful crimes just get a little slap on the hand. We don't seem to have this proportion of the punishment being fit for the crime. But uh, that's what we have in Exodus, a punishment upon Egypt that fits the crime. It fits the crime. Exodus is, of course, uh, God's, a, a record of God's mighty act of redemption. But there's also a message built into the story of, is, of Israel coming out of Egypt that is a message of divine justice and judgment and condemnation upon an arrogant empire that dealt harshly with humble people who were without protection, who had no one to speak for them. And God dealt with it. And that's a record written down. And you know, sometimes I think people look at things that God does like this and they say, oh God, he's bad, he's mean. He kills people, right? Have you not heard anything like that? You know, God, he's a, he's a bad God. It was a big deal during the, you know, the angry atheist movement of like 10, 15 years ago. It's kind of died down now, but that argument has been put out in the public square. But I ask you this, friends. I've got a question for you. Do you want justice? Do you want justice in the universe? Do you want justice in the world? Can there be justice without punishment for evil deeds? Can there? Really? No. God deals with evil. Now, 
there were two women mentioned here. I don't know if they were the only midwives. I, I would expect that there were probably had to be a few more, but I don't know. These two women, uh, Shifra and Pua, they were noted here, called out and you know, named by name, which is a real privilege in scripture. Uh, they're noted by name for their bravery. And they refused to obey the Pharaoh's command because doing so, they would then violate God's command, okay? And uh, sometimes people, they'll, they'll make a big deal out of these two women and say, oh, they lied, they broke a commandment. They refused to obey what Pharaoh commanded because they answered to a higher law, God's command. Don't murder. So uh, Israel, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that they kind of entered into the confusion of idolatry and sensual pleasure and all that, but there was still remembrance of God's commands. These women knew better, okay? And Abraham knew God's commands, and he, he passed them on to his descendants. Just a couple of quick verses on that. Genesis 26, verse 5. Very good memory scriptures here. Genesis 26, verse 5. Uh, because Abraham obeyed me, that's God speaking, and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. And that's why Abraham receives the, uh, the blessing of the covenant. And then quickly go over uh, back to Genesis 18, which tells us something about Abraham's character and how his family operated. It says in uh, Genesis 18, verse 9, oh, phooey, I got the wrong verse. 19 verse 9 or 18 verse? Yeah, okay. Uh, it says, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So Abraham was noted by God as a person he could count on to pass on this understanding. I mean, Abraham knew God's laws, statutes, and commands, right? And God called him out and said, this guy will pass them along to his descendants. So Israel had some truth. They had some other stuff mixed in too, and that was a problem, but they did have some truth. Okay, let's get back to Exodus uh, 1, verse 22. It says, then the Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Okay, we've tried this thing where we kill them at birth. That's not working because I can't, I can't get the uh, logistics worked out. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. So, more drastic measures indeed. Took it to the next level. No more secret plans now there would be an open policy of racial genocide unleashed on the Hebrew people. That's what they were involved in. That's what was going on with these people. How could a civilization like Egypt, which, you know, was filled with refinement, uh, beautiful art, culture, uh, the, the most envied nation in the world, how, oh, they had, and they had a great education system, how could they do something like this? How could that happen? Somehow, these Egyptian people had gone from regarding Israel as welcome guests to be brought into the country 
to the point where they viewed them as something less than human beings. Surely they must have looked at them, you know, less, lesser human beings if they were going to treat them this way, murder all their, their baby boys. Something less than people who have hopes and dreams like them. They basically, I think, turned them into abstract categories, you know, the enemy or useful drones who were meant to perform necessary tasks. And then, moving on, they became unworthy of life. Now, as a society, we are headed in the same direction. That's what we're doing to one another. Now, I'm, I'm not saying you personally, but you're in a culture that's doing this same thing, denying human dignity to people that we fear or that we disagree with. And we can argue about who started it. Um, we can argue about who's the worst offender. But that won't change it. It won't make any difference at all. The only way to change it is to stop. And the only person you can stop is yourself. And it's one more, more way which you and I must not get sucked into the world around us. And we are headed into a season in our country where that's exactly what's going to be going on. I'm not looking forward to it. We need to hold our head above the water. We cannot let ourselves get sucked into that kind of thinking. Now, looking ahead, if you think about what the Pharaoh said, to get back to the story here, by commanding that the, the babies be thrown into the, into the water to drown, Pharaoh is sort of, uh, I think, trying to unload the obvious guilt of what they're doing upon the judgment of the Nile. Let the Nile deal with them. Ironically, the Nile was looked upon by the Egyptians as you know, the life-giving manifestation of, of the gods. But they were using it for a very different reason. And so the first great punishment, remember I talked previously about the last great punishment God inflicted on Egypt. The first great punishment God inflicts on Egypt is turned on that same river, the Nile. And what does he do with it? It's turned to blood. God does not forget the horrible crime that they've committed. And so there's blood for blood. But a baby is saved. Let's go to Exodus 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. But when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, and then she placed the child in it and put it along the reeds on the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood by at a distance to see what would happen to him. So the family hid the baby. Uh, they were probably trying to, you know, they were hiding it to avoid what was probably the Egyptian police who would sweep through and search the village and haul away all the, the baby boys they could find and kill them. You know, maybe they were hiding their child from their neighbors. I wouldn't be surprised if they had to worry about their neighbors, too. You know? 
Well, my son got taken, yours is gonna get taken too. That's the way people are, right? And so they put him in this basket and set him out on the river. But when they did that, they weren't like just casting him off in the river and that he would float down and they didn't know it was random what would happen to him. I don't think that's what's going on at all. They didn't just abandon him to the river. They, they, they put him out there and his older sister Miriam was set there to keep an eye on the baby so that she could ensure that he was safe. And Miriam would have been about 12 years old. Go to uh, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 23. This is commented on, this incident is commented on here. It says, by faith, Moses' parents, Amram and Jacobed, hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So by faith, the parents believed God could help. That's faith. And that it would make a difference. And they did not accept their circumstances. And they looked for God to provide them a way out. You know, they put it, the child in the basket, set it out there. Maybe God would save our child. And maybe saving this little child would make a difference. Let's pick it up in verse 5 through 10. It says, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, that would be Miriam, asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So the mother, Jacobed, and it says, you know, in Hebrews, both the father and the mother were involved in this, so both Amrad and Jacobed, they uh, placed the basket on the river, and I think they put it in a place where she knew it would be found, and I don't know, maybe she knew the Pharaoh's daughter went to this particular spot. Um, did, the, did the princess maybe have a reputation for compassion? I don't know. Um, or was... was Jacobed merely hoping that another woman's heart would be moved by what she found. Did God move her heart? Don't know. What we do know is that the daughter of Pharaoh said, he's a Hebrew baby. So she knew, <laughs> she knew this was, hmm, this is one of those babies that's supposed to, to die. This is a Hebrew baby. She knew that. She was aware. But, you know, if she thought about it a long time, maybe she would have thought, yeah, I don't know if this is worth it. But, like, right away, Miriam shows up. Hey. <laughs> she was there. She showed up, you know, before, you know, she could think about it too much. Would you like me to, to find the mother and, and she could nurse the baby for you? And, you know, before any of the practical logistics of it could go, you know, work out in her mind. 
She said, yes. And I think that's, that's an interesting note there, um, principle you can use in, in business, I think, or you know, in other areas of life. People are way more likely to say yes when you give them a ready-made solution, you know? If you just point out a problem and say, we've got a problem here, you're not necessarily going to get your answer to the problem be the way it's solved. But if you come and you say, I've got a solution for this problem, people are more inclined to say yes. That's just kind of how we work. So Jacob had saved her baby, and uh, she even got to raise the baby, which is, is very cool. And based on what we read here, I think it's important that, that we think about Moses knew his mom, and so he knew who he was. And that's sort of different from what you get from the famous Cecil B. B. DeMille movie, The Ten Commandments, where he doesn't know who he is. But he was, he was nursed by his mother, and you know, I think he knew who his family was. I think he knew who he was. I don't know. It doesn't say for sure. I think, I, I think you know, the next section, uh, which we're not going to cover today, uh, there's a pretty good indication that he knew who he was. More on that later, though. So, individuals matter. The turn of events that I just walked through, the, you know, the scriptures walked us through, there is a chain of unlikely coincidences, right? Okay? How unlikely that this is the way it would work out? To some, that would be, oh, it's like a fairy tale or, you know, some kind of a flight of human imagination, cultural myths. But the reality of what's going on here is the hand of God was at work providing for himself a suitable person to lead Israel out of Egypt. Now, a lot of people say that we as individuals are irrelevant. And I think that this is another cultural phenom that's taken on more steam, more power in the past decade or two. The individual doesn't really matter. I mean, history even people, are really just the results of unseen, impersonal forces acting in unchangeable ways. You know? You're just the result of how you were raised. You're the product of all these unseen forces. It used to be that the favorite unseen force was economics. And that was made famous, of course, by Karl Marx. You know, everything was economics, and this is just titanic juggernaut that shapes history and everything is based on economics. Nowadays, what's our thing? We blame everything on biology. Well, that's just, it's just biology, right? Either way, it's a way of thinking we must avoid because it's a way of thinking that allows us to take comfort when we do bad things. Oh, well, that wasn't me. That was just the force of nature. That was just biology. I was made this way. Or that's how I was brought up and the forces of economics made it all happen. I had no choice. It was inevitable. And that can lead us to the point where we give in to evil trends and movements that are going on around us. And that's a way we can get sucked in to the world around us because we see it as inevitable or unavoidable, not our fault. And to that, God's word says, no, you matter. And what you do matters. The force that moves human history is me. 
That's God speaking. <laughs> the force that moves human history is God. And he's interested. And he's involved. And he's listening. Destruction is not inevitable or unavoidable because I am here to help. Fortunately, Moses' parents had faith in that. And I hope we do too. Now maybe you say, oh, yeah, 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 but I'm no Moses. You're probably right. I'm no Moses. Now maybe he, he was called to do something amazing that changed everything. But I'm just little old me. That is not how God sees you. You have been called to serve his purpose and to take your place in this grand plan. You're in a point in God's plan and you're part of it. You've been called to serve his purpose in a very important way. During the the 1,000 year reign of Christ that, that begins after his coming, You've been called to participate in that. And that's going to be a huge turning point in human history on the planet. Everything will change. And you'll be part of it. You matter. And that turning point is going to be greater than any exodus. It'll be greater than the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. Turn to... Matthew 11, verse 11, for a parting scripture. Matthew 11, verse 11. And so back, you know, my, my point was, and has been, to try and draw out their history a bit. Their history is our history. We can relate to it. We should relate to it. And we should see ourselves as part of a, a grander scheme. If we look at Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he says something very interesting in verse 11. He says, truly I tell you, speaking to his disciples, among those born of women, so all humanity is what he's getting at here, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So I guess he's throwing Moses under the bus there. John the Baptist, no one greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is greater than he. So you matter. You've been called to do something very important. You're part of God's grand design and grand plan.